Okay, today is May the 5th, 2011. I'll remind the men that this Saturday we're going to meet those who want to go to uh, Kevin's house for barbecue and Bible doctrine and bullets. You know, most of the time when you talk about a day that has all this B in it, you always, most of the time, have beer in there. We don't have any beer. <laughs> but there probably will be bull there, so. <laughs> so, if you want to go and you hadn't signed up and you decide that you want to go, just show up here Saturday morning at 7.30 and we're going to see who all is going to be here and then we're going to carpool there and back. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, the opportunity to rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for yet another opportunity to grow in grace and knowledge and for providing everything that we need in order to do so. So we pray that you will help us to focus and concentrate and file what we learn into our long-term memory banks. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I'm not against uh, people going to college. I think it's a good thing. But <clears throat> I think there needs to be a little bit of reality, maybe a reality check with regards to people going to college. If you have something in life that requires a college degree, I would say go for it, for sure. However, but a lot of people are on the idea that you have to go to college, and if you don't go to college, you're kind of a second-class citizen. And that if you do go to college, then you're nearly guaranteed a better job. And Phyllis Shafley made a comment here. It's in the New American under quick quotes. And it kind of sheds a little light on this. She says that education investments don't create jobs, especially for college graduates. She says, quote, the Center for College Affordability and Productivity found that 60% of the increase in the number of college graduates from 1992 to 2008 now work in relatively low-skilled jobs that need only a high school diploma or less. In her syndicated column, Phyllis Shafley pointed out that 17.4 million recent college graduates are working as cashiers, waiters, waitresses, or bartenders. There's nothing wrong with those jobs, but pretty expensive to go to college these days and wind up with uh, jobs that people who don't go to college uh, are able to acquire. One thing that she didn't say that I think I'll bring out is that it's so expensive to go to college these days, and if you have parents that are able to send you, well, that's, that's, that's great. But a lot of students aren't able to do that, and they're acquiring loans to go to college. And they get out, and they're finding a hard time getting jobs, and they have that loan to pay off. And there's a lot of young people, uh, and not necessarily just young people, but 
are struggling to pay off their college loans, and at the same time they're having a hard time uh, getting a job. It's just they're just feeling uh, the the pinch. I know when my daughter graduated from uh, Texas A&M and she got a job at a large uh, corporation and she thought she was going to go right up the corporate ladder. She called me one day and she was just bawling. I said, what's the matter, huh? She said, all I do is get coffee for people, work all day, I go home, I wash dishes, you know, I do this, that, and then I get ready and do the same thing over the next day. I said, welcome to the world, huh? <laughs> I don't know what they taught her in college, but they didn't teach her the reality of what it's like to be in harness. So, and again, don't think that I'm saying that college is a bad thing. It's a good thing. But it's also expensive, and it's not for everyone. And for people who have drive and initiative and ambition... In this country still, you can go a long ways. So, uh, let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse We've covered the first part of this verse already. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the tradition, traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. We've already covered the standing firm part. And that took a while. Many, many places in the Bible we are commanded to stand firm. Stand firm for the Lord. Stand firm for the faith. Stand firm for the gospel. And I gave you some practical aspects of standing firm. The wrong way to do it and the right way to do it. And I think that's important to note because some people think that standing firm for the faith means that you are to um, argue with people to the point to where they hate your guts. You can win an argument and lose a soul. It's not about arguing, and it takes discernment. Everything in life takes discernment, even in standing firm for the faith. You have to know when to let it go. You have to know when to speak, when not to speak. And one of the main things that I addressed in the practicality of standing firm for the faith is asking questions. I think more than anything else, this is where Christendom today is missing the mark because they think standing firm for the faith is standing behind the pulpit or is getting on a soapbox and preaching to people and they don't like it and they won't listen. But if you ask them questions, they are forced to think. And if you can get someone to think, especially about God, about spiritual matters, about heaven, about salvation, if you can just have them start thinking, then you've done more than what most people are able to do in a lifetime. 
And you do that by asking questions. Okay, so we're going to start tonight on hold to the traditions. I'll put the notes up here so y'all can see them. And hold to the traditions. Hold is the Greek word krateo, K-R-A-T-E-O. It's a verb. It's a present active imperative. That means that you are to continue to hold to the traditions, not just a one-shot thing. And it's a command. Active voice, you have to do it. It's our responsibility to hold to the traditions. And it means to take hold of, to adhere strongly to something. The only way one, way, uh, one can obey the command to hold on to something in this fashion is to be committed to it. What is held on to must be of the highest priority. Commitment isn't a big word in Bible churches. The reason is because so many people think that you have to have a commitment and they link it to salvation, eternal salvation. And that's why we tend to kind of shy away from it. But it is a good word and it's proper when you're talking about holding to tradition. You have to make a commitment in your life to something that has a high priority. And this word, krateo, means to hold on, grasp it. And if you haven't made a commitment to hold on to the traditions, we'll get to traditions in just a moment, what that's about. But first of all, this word means to keep on doing this. It's not just once. You continue to do it. If you're going to do that, it has to be something that you are committed to doing. Not many people are consistent in anything these days. But if you are going to be consistent in something, this is where you want to put your commitment, to put your consistency is on holding on to something. And in this text, in this sense, it's talking about traditions. Now, the word traditions and hold to the traditions. The Greek word is paradosis, P-A-R-A-D-O-S-I-S. It's a noun, accusative, plural, feminine. And it means a tradition, doctrine, or injunction delivered or communicated from one to another. The content of instruction that has been handed down. And we're going to look at this tradition because it's, it's a loaded word. Has a lot there, and we need to see the different aspects to it. But first of all, we want to go to a few other verses that are similar to what we see here. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the paradosis, the traditions, just as I deliver them to you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now, we had not got to this yet, but we will. Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is strong. Commanding someone in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ has weight to it. That you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life. I can't wait to get there and deal with this word, keep aloof. A lot of people think keeping aloof is when you have a posture like this. But we'll get there. Keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to what the tradition 
which you received from us. And then we have Jude 1. There's only one chapter in Jude. Jude 1, 17 through 19. But you, believe, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were, what they were saying to you in the last time, in the last days, there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. And what we have here are people who are always going to try to either enlist faulty or bad traditions, and they're going to mock and they are going to try to tear down the good traditions. I think before we get to this part, I'm going to talk, say something about traditions. Today is May the 5th, Cinco de Mayo. And there is a tradition, at least there is in Houston, where they celebrate Cinco de Mayo. They have a parade and they have celebrations and everything. Why this is done in America is beyond me. Why we would be celebrating the independence of another country. Why would Americans be interested in that? Well, that's a whole other thing. But we do have traditions that I question, traditions that I wonder, that really doesn't make that much sense to me, but that is an example of a tradition. I don't know when it developed or when it happened, but I do know it's more, uh, it is associated, has to do with the multicultural claptrap crap that it continues to invade our society. I'm not going to go off on this. I just thought I would bring it up as an illustration. Too late. I already did. Okay, well, sorry. Um, of the traditions that have crept in that are not so healthy. I think I'll go to this before I go to uh, what I'm going to concentrate on. There's a difference between traditions, and when you say traditions, the way it's used in this verse is the same as instructions. There's a difference between traditions or instructions, uh, believers passed down from the apostles, and traditions and instructions handed down by the elders and Pharisees. The former was based on the infallible, inspired Word of God, and the latter is based on the bias and opinions of religious leaders. So there is a difference. We're going to go to a script. Well, we'll just go to it right now. Turn to Matthew chapter 15. We'll go to Matthew chapter 15, and we're going to, see, we're going to note this difference of traditions that were passed down by the apostles that were based on the Word of God and traditions that were passed down by the Pharisees that was not based on the Word of God. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Uh, this is pretty pathetic. This is, this is what the only thing they had to come up with. This is what they were going to level as an accusation. 
they followed the, the disciples and Jesus everywhere. And they're trying to dig up some dirt. Anything that they can to cause trouble and make allegations and accusations. And this is what they come up with? So, because Christ always has the perfect answer. He's always prepared. And so, verse 3, And he, this is Christ, answered and said to them, And why do you... Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now, one thing I want you to notice this. Maybe you didn't notice it, but I'm going to point it out. They asked Christ a question. He answered with a question. You notice that? The power of questions. He didn't start coming out with a lot of defense as to why they did it. What did he do? What did he do? He asked a question and now they are on the defensive. Now they have to defend something that, that is indefensible. I just thought I'd throw out the importance of questions here. So he says, why do you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now in this verse what we have is a comparison and a distinction between the Word of God and tradition. Now, there are some traditions that come from the Word of God. But what he's doing is saying, you're talking about tradition. He's talking about a tradition that was not part of Scripture. It was a tradition from the bias and the prejudice of the Pharisees that was not part of the Mosaic Law. And so they're trying to fault the disciples for something that wasn't even command, commanded in the Mosaic Law. It was part of their tradition, maybe in the Talmud or the Mishnah, the added writings that they have, but it's not part of the Word of God. So right off the bat, Jesus is making a distinction between that which is written, that which is Scripture, and that which is not. Verse 4. For God said, Honor your, your father and mother, and he who speaks, speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. Pretty strong words. They had to honor them. According to Mosaic law, if you struck your parents, you could be executed. If you cursed your parents, you could be executed. If we employed that in today's society... <laughs> the teenage population would be drastically cut. Verse 5. But you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have, that you may have been helped by, has been given to God. Now if you look up here on the board, where we have this word here, Corban. See it right here? The Corban practice in view was that of pledging money or other material resources to the temple to be paid upon one's death. These funds would therefore not be transferred to anyone else but could still be used for one's own benefit while one was alive. And so what Jesus was doing is pointing out how they were not... He didn't bring up a taboo. He didn't bring up a tradition 
he brought out the fact that they were transgressing the Mosaic law. And the way they were transgressing it, when it says honor your father and mother, it's not just respecting them, saying yes ma'am, no ma'am, this type of thing. It also means taking care of them. And these scribes and Pharisees who were so pious, so self-righteous, he levels them with this because he says, when you honor your father and mother, part of that is taking care of them. And they had a gimmick. They would say, okay, everything that I have, my property and my means, my money, all these things, have been dedicated to the temple. And when they died, then everything would go to the temple. But in the meantime, they could use it however they wanted. And so when their father and mother was in need... They would say, well, you know, I'd like to give it to you, but all this is dedicated to the temple. And that was, that was, it was just simply wrong. Because they had the means and they could have used that money to support their family, but they had this gimmick. And so they were breaking the Mosaic law by not honoring their father and mother and taking care of them. And Christ pointed it out. Now, he made a true and accurate and valid allegation because they were breaking the Mosaic law, not a tradition. Do you see the difference we have going here between the Word of God and tradition, which is not the Word of God? I'll repeat verse 5. But you say, whoever shall say to his father and mother anything of mine, you might have been helped by has been given to God, dedicated to the temple. He is not to honor his father or his mother, and thus you invalidate what? The word of God for the sake of your tradition. Boy, did he ever. Here they are trying to nitpick him by accusing his disciples of doing something dastardly, and what hypocrites. They were really guilty of breaking the Mosaic law. Verse 7, he says, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the precepts of men. How often is that done today? How many times are there ignorant believers who judge others because of their legalistic, ignorant accusations. It is not a sin to drink alcoholic beverage. Now, it's wrong for believers to do it in some circumstances, but it's not a, it's not a sin under normal circumstances. Drinking is not a sin. Drunkenness is a sin, and yet many believers are... are chastised. Sometimes they are alienated and they are separated and people will talk about them because uh, they imbibe. They have an alcoholic beverage. Well, again, this is a taboo. It might be a tradition. It's something that's not part of the Scriptures. And there's many, many illustrations. Some people think if you dance, that dancing is of the devil. And if you dance, then you're... and See... The Bible does not condemn dancing. In fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says there's a, a, a time to dance. 
The time isn't to dance isn't when the Word of God is being taught. There are some people who do that. They get all worked up and lathered up, and they start dancing and crowing and everything else. But there's a time to dance. It's okay to dance. So we have to make, we, we have to make the proper distinctions here. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Okay, back up here on two other quotes I have. This verse, talking about verse 15 of 2 Thessalonians, we'll go back to 2 Thessalonians now. 2 Thessalonians verse 15 is sometimes used to justify the tradition of churches are of religious leaders. But traditions which are contrary to the Word of God are worthless and dangerous. Not only are they worthless, they're also dangerous. If mere traditions are accepted as equal with the Bible, who is to decide which traditions are right and which ones are wrong? I got that from the Believer's Bible Commentary, Old and New Testament. Now I'm going to give you an example of a tradition that I think is worthless and dangerous. And, it, and it's something that has just taken place recently, within the last week or two, in our news. And that is the beatification of Pope John Paul II. Have y'all, have y'all heard? You heard about that maybe, okay? Most people, even I, I heard of this and I thought, well, that's some razzmatazz that the Catholic Church is going through, but I didn't really look into it. It is a tradition. This is not something, certainly not something that is, that is prescribed or commanded, authorized by the Word of God. But I thought I'd bring out some of the aspects of this beatification so that you can understand how much time and effort goes into tradition rather than studying and applying the Word of God. First of all, the word saint, you all know, every one of you should know about the word saint, hagios. We are all saints. However, it says, uh, I got this from a website. It's too, if you want it, I'll give it to you later, but this is just one short paragraph. It says, talking about the word saint, is used by Catholics and some non-Catholic Christians in two ways. The second way, much more than the first. The first, in imitation of the Bible, the simple form of the word refers to all Christian believers. Got that right. But it says that's not used that much. It's the second meaning that is used by far the most. Uh, this can be seen in our recitation of the Apostles' Creed, in which we say, I believe in the communion of the saints. Now, we don't cite the Apostles' Creed. That's something that man made up. I'm much more interested in what the apostles said while they were inspired by, inspired by the Word of God, aren't you? Anyway, he says this communion consists of the saints of the church here on earth. <laughs> You're going to take some issue with this as I go, but you'll, I'm just quoting here. It says this communion, which is part of the Apostles' Creed, consists of the saints of the church here on earth, the saints of the church suffering in purgatory, and the saints of the church triumphant in heaven. 
Now, I don't know what they mean triumphant in heaven, but that suggests, it sounds like to me, like it's not talking about their soul or spirit is in heaven, but church triumphant in heaven would suggest to me a resurrection body, which only Christ has so far. That's all has to do with the first. The second and most used is more common to Catholics, and the specific form of the word saint refers to an angel or human person whose soul and sometimes body too is now in heaven with Jesus, their dearest friend. Now, you know that there is no person with a body, not a human body or a resurrection body in heaven right now. Now, I just thought I'd give you that with regards to sainthood and how some people look at this. But with regards to the beatification, by the way, if you want to spell that, it's B-E-A-T-I-F-I-C-A-T-I-O-N. This is the steps to sainthood. Now, this is the tradition that a probably one-fourth of the world population would ascribe to with regards to the steps to sainthood. In our own time, because the Pope says such a prom- plays such a prominent role in canonization, I'll tell you what that is in a moment, it's tempting to think that the process begins and ends at the Vatican. It doesn't. Yes, the Pope makes the final decision, but just as in the early church, the, press, the process starts locally. In very simple terms, these are the steps that lead to canonization. Now, this is a definition of, do you all know what canonization is? Canonization is the act by which the Catholic Church declares a deceased person to be a saint upon which declaration the person is included in the canon or list of recognized saints. Well, I have to tell you something. There is a list of saints, and your name is there, and my name is there, and it's called the Book of Life. And the Lamb's Book of Life is there too. Okay, here are the steps. If any of you are interested in being canonized, I'd just as soon be cannibalized as be canonized, but anyway. The reason I'm doing this, I want you to see the effort and the time that people put into a tradition. Number one, it begins with the local community, a religious order or organization, such as the Knights of Columbus, asking themselves if one of their own might indeed have been a saint. He or she may have been a wonderful person, but that's not nearly enough. Unless he was a martyr... And yes, there are still martyrs for the faith. He has to have been more than virtuous. See, if you're a martyr, you cut through a lot of red tape. Uh, more than a good guy. He has to be more than a good guy. Um, more even than a... Uh, uh, oh, he must have demonstrated he- heroic virtue. He must have demonstrated an abundance of faith, hope, and love, of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Well, that, work, that rules out most people. Number three. So the people who knew him are now know of him, get together and agree that he just might have what it takes to be a saint. In case of the knights, this is talking about the knights of Columbus, and uh, it's the father uh, McGivney, M-C-G-I-V-N-E-Y. I get, he's the one that I think started the knights of Columbus. Uh, uh, He's, he's, they call it a guild. That little group 
could make a private pilgrimage to his gravesite and have some memorial cards printed up. Now you're, you're, putting, you're nominating somebody to be a, a, a saint, essentially. This ad hoc committee could go also and ask people to pray that he be canonized and suggest people pray for him for help in their own lives. That's just what the members of the Father of McGinney, McGivney Guild are now doing. So you get to, if you get the Knights of Columbus behind you and they are doing these uh, memorial cards printed up and you start getting some activity and resonating in the grassroots, you're on the right track. Four, it could be a big boost if the candidate had been responsible for some miracles when he was alive. But that's not mandatory, especially if you're a martyr. You don't, they, you don't have to do miracles if you're dead. If you were martyred, so if if he had been uh, if he had been that is um, done these miracles, those events would have to be carefully examined and documented further along in the canonization process. But word of his miracles while he was alive, or of his interceding after death, can attract others to the group, especially those who don't know about him. So if you got a candidate. And he's done some miracles, and you get the word out, yeah, then you, you get the ball rolling. You're on your way. Number five. What this group is doing is creating a cult or a devotion that centers on him. I can't believe they said that, a cult that centers on him. But this is a private devotion. That's very important. At this point, his devotees can meet and pray in homes or in the cemetery, but not in church. That would <laughs> can't pray in church. That would make what they're doing a public devotion. This is private at this time. Number six, the group wants to hang on to his belongings. All of it, everything he owned or used, will be a relic later in the process. No garage sales. <laughs> Sorry. Seven. The group needs to get local a local bishop on board. He's the one who decides, say, we ought to look into this. Of course, it could be a long time after that person's death before that happens. In the case of Father McGivney, who got this Knights of Columbus cranked up, more than 100 years went by between his death and the formal opening of his cause. In this case, in the case of Mother Teresa, just a few months lapsed between her death and the opening of her cause. Now, see, they call this a cause at this point. Number eight. After it gets into the bishop's hands, it's out of the groups. It's over. You've done your deal. It's, in, it's getting to be big time now. It's in the bishop's hands. There's still the matter of finances. Oh, oh. The group can't buy a canonization, but getting someone canonized, canon, <laughs> canonized takes money. Why? Expenses have to be paid. Research has to be done. Someone has to oversee the whole project. Results need to be collected for presentation to the Vatican. That's another advantage of the grassroots support. Not only can the group ask for prayers for the candidate's cause, but it can, also, uh, it, can, uh, uh, it can ask folks to send funds to help cover the cost. That's important because while the case moves from the diocese to Rome, someone has to foot the bill. According to the church norms, that has to be the group backing the idea. Number nine. The person who gathers the material for the bishop and oversees putting it together is the postulator. After all is in order, the bishop sends it to Rome, Father McGivney's cause. I don't know why they keep going to Father McGivney. I guess he's the example. 
is, uh, is at this stage. Now, last spring, the postulator, the Dominican father, uh, Gabriel, presented 700 pages of material to the Congregation for the Causes of Saints. It will become the foundation for the positio, P-O-S-I-T-I-O, the case file promoting the advancement of the cause which Father O'Connell is currently working on in Rome. Just hang in there. I only have 12 more pages. <laughs> Number 10. There is still... Oh, this one is... Uh, there is still a translation of the body. Just as in the Middle Ages, the bishop and others are on hand when it is exhumed and examined. They're going to dig up the poor person. This is also done to make sure the person uh, the group thinks is buried there uh, really is buried there. Then, too, there could be signs of incorruptibility, which is cons considered a potential indication of holiness. What does the Bible say? These are corruptible bodies, and you don't... Listen, I don't think I'm going to be buried anyway. I think I'm going to be cremated. But if I'm not, and my, my body is in there, don't come digging me up, because I will stink us. I stinketh now. On the other hand, if the body has corrupted, it is not viewed as a negative. Well, that's good. Uh, typically, as a part of the translation, the body is moved to a more prominent place, one that's easier for pilgrims to visit. In the case of Father... I don't forget Father McKibney. Um, Levin. After carefully examining all the evidence, the congregation for the cause of the saints will present its findings to the head, the prefect and its members they decide whether or not to forward the cause to the pope we're getting to be big time now 12 once declared a servant of god which is when the cause is opened and then declared venerable by a decree of a life of heroic virtue the vatican waits in a sense it leaves the next two steps up to god well i doubt that but anyway in our own time a miracle attributed to the intervention of the servant of God, the servant. See, this person now has gone from a person to a servant of God. That's not yet beatified and it's not canonized, but you're on your way. So, in our own time, a miracle attributed to the intervention of the servant of God is needed before he can be declared blessed. At that point, he is given a particular liturgy and a place on the local church calendar, and there can be a public devotion to him in the church. In the past, two miracles were needed for beatification. Uh, it's getting really stringent now. Two miracles needed for beatification, and two for canonization. Now, it is, it is one and one. In the past, you had to have two and two, but they're, they're making it easier. You only need one for beatification, one for canonization. Here is the term, this is the definition of a beatification. It's from the Latin beatus, B-E-A-T-U-S, which means blessed, is a recognition accorded by the Catholic Church of a dead person's entrance into heaven and capacity to intercede on behalf of individuals who pray in his or her name. So if you are beatified, then people can start 
using you as an inter to intercede. That is an intercessory. And what does the Bible say? There is only one name given among man. My word must be saved. Man, Jesus Christ, he is the one and only intercessor for us. Beatification is the third of four steps in the canonization process. A person who is beatified is given the title blessed. Now, this is, this is what's going to... This is, just got me. Pope John Paul II, 16 October 1978 uh, through sec, uh, April 2nd, 2005, markedly changed previous Catholic practice of beatification. On October 2004, he had beatified how many people do you think? I mean, this sounds like a pretty in-depth thing. Just give me a number. How many How many do you think? How many? 200? That's what y'all think? Y'all go along with 200? <laughs> how many people have been beatified by Pope John II? We're not even there yet, but you heard what all. Yeah, that's what you would think. 1,340 people have been... Uh, this is more than the sum of all his predecessors combined. Uh, Pope Sixtus V. <laughs> Pope Sixtus V. 1585 to 1590, who established a beatification procedure, procedure similar to that day. Uh, uh, well, I'll skip that part. These days, since most miracles involved healing, a group of Roman physicians known as the Consulta Medica review cases and determine if there is a medical explanation for what has happened. In other words, if you have a miracle, you can't just... Usually it's a healing. Somebody, you've got to get the doctors in on it. And, and they, don't, uh, they don't declare, yes, this was a miracle, but we can find no scientific explanation for what happened. I think that will, that will do. Thirteen, we're getting close. Ultimately, the Pope chooses to beatify the person or not. Most often, the ceremony is held at St. Peter's in Rome, but that doesn't have to be the case. John Paul II has held beatifications through, throughout the world during his visit. So when he would go visit some country, well, let's knock out some beatifications while we're here. Fourteen. It takes another miracle for a blessed to become a saint. It could be that that, that never happens. Some people remain a servant of God, other, others blessed. Then, too, even if another miracle has been attributed to the person, it is the Pope who chooses to canonize or not. What if that person is never canonized, never beatified, never declared venerable? He still has a feast day. So you get something out of the deal. All who Listen to this. All who died in God's grace, including our own loved ones, that's why we have... All Saints Day. All Saints Day is celebrating those who never made it to beatified or venerable or canonized. Just take all the saints and you got a feast day for them. That's November the 1st, 
uh, feast is for all the souls in heaven canonized or not. Um, and then it tells you what the different deals are. Now, the reason I spent all of this time to go through that is to explain how, many, how much paperwork, how many hundreds or thousands of hours are poured into this nonsense. Tradition. The Bible does not, it does not command this. I would go so far as to say, I don't even think it would condone it. So when we're looking at these traditions, do not get this, that you are to hold to the traditions. It doesn't say the traditions of men like this. The traditions which we gave to you, that, they, that you received, that they, were, that they taught. That's what's coming up next in, in the Scriptures, in, in our study. That were taught. The Word of God. They're connected with the Word of God. So you can... What Christ said to these Pharisees, you make void the Word of God by your traditions. And somebody might go, ah, oh, yes, but look what uh, Paul said to the Thessalonians. He says to, what? Hold to these traditions, but that Word is not all-inclusive. There is the tradition. In this context, means instructions. It means teaching of the Word. It's talking about doctrine. Hold to those doctrines which we taught. Not all the nonsense that men come up with re with regards to, to tradition. Here it is right here, which you were taught. Now, I'm sorry that I put you through all that and reading all this blather, but I thought that would impress upon you. And this is just one tradition. Just be thankful that I didn't choose Lent. Because y'all all probably would have left because I'd have been frothing out the mouth by the time I got over it. Another tradition, which is not biblical, and I say it is harmful. It is dangerous. You have to be very dis dis uh, discerning when it comes to traditions. Okay, so we're talking about to hold to the traditions which you were taught. And we have here didasco. It's a verb. Aorist, passive, indicative. It means to instruct or tell someone, look at this, what to do. And there are a lot of people out there that do not like to be told by anyone what to do. But I'm here to tell you that the Word of God from cover to cover is not bashful, nor does it equivocate in telling people what to do and what not to do. And that's why some people stay away from it. They don't want any part of it. Ignorant is bliss. If I don't know what the Bible says, then I don't have to worry about breaking anything because I don't know what it is. It means to impart knowledge with the highest possible development of the pupil as the goal. That's all in didasco. This, uh, this aorist is a cumulative aorist which emphasizes the results. It accumulates everything and emphasizes the results of what happens when you hold to the instruction. In this case, the results come from the intake of doctrine. The passive voice means that the instruction must be received. We may actively seek instruction, 
but we will never learn unless we receive it. There are a lot of people out there that are after instruction. They are zealous. They are seeking. And you know what? That is in the active voice. We have to do that. We have to seek. You remember the, the, the word in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15? Spudazzo, study, show thyself approved unto God. Remember that? That is active voice. That's zeal. We have to have that. But seeking and receiving is not the same. You can seek the Word. You can seek instruction. But you know a lot of people, that even people who seek it, they don't receive it. And you know why not? That's my next point here. No one can learn unless he is humble. You have to have humility in order to learn. Learning does not take place unless one submits to the authority of the teacher. Now, it doesn't have to be a face-to-face. When you read a book and you're trying to learn something, it's still an issue. Are you going to submit to the authority of the teacher? Now, if you think you know more than the teacher does, you're not going to submit to it. So there has to be humility. If there's not submission, I don't know what what grade is it, second grade where they say, okay, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Now, usually in the second grade, this doesn't happen. This usually goes, happens in grades later on. But did anybody in your class, uh, uh, teacher, I don't think so. It, de- it depends on what the number base of two is. Is that, did that happen? Probably not, but it happens later on. But you have to, you have to trust, you have to accept something from someone else or else you're never going to learn. And there's a lot of people who never learn because they think they know it all. And I'm not just talking about 16-year-olds either. Arrogant people don't learn because they are closed-minded. Rather than listening to things that they may not understand or agree, agree with, and give them real consideration, they quickly reject them. Done all the time. You do it. You've done it. I've done it. And we've got to be careful of that. We carry around in our soul a norm and standard. We have basic things that we believe and accept. And when someone comes along and says something to the contrary, what do we do? Do we actually listen to what they're saying? When they give evidence, when they're, when they're trying to present their case, do we really give it a fair hearing? Maybe not all the time. And that's one reason you, to receive something. You have to be humble enough to give something a fair hearing. How many times in your life have you been so dogmatic, you'd bet the farm on this, you've got this one down, this is... Uh, Cut and dry, there's no equivocation. I know this is what it is. And then someone comes along and challenges that. And if it starts to make sense, rather than saying, hey, maybe you have a point, we get offended. I dare you disagree with me. Who are you? And then we start making them the case. Where'd you get that from? Who are they? We just like to throw it right back in their face. And with some people, They do that on everything, and they never learn. 
because they're number, never humble. You know why? Because it never even enters their head, maybe I might be wrong. There are some people who, th- they never give that a thought. And that's not what we should be. We should be open-minded. Those are the people who are afraid. Some of the people that will argue more with you than anybody else are the people that aren't so sold on what they believe. They're afraid that they might be wrong. And so rather than listen to you, they're going to argue you down. I used to be like that, especially with my sister. Hated it when she was right. She would say something to me, and, I, and it would kind of strike a chord, and I think it might be right, but I would get louder. I would be more vociferous in my argument to defend it because I didn't want to entertain the thought that she might be right. This goes on all the time. All this has to do with the passive voice. You're here. You're listening. See, you, you had to use your own volition. You had in the active voice. Nobody got in your car and drove you here. Well, maybe you were along for the ride, but I mean, you, you came here because in the active voice, you're seeking. You wanted the information. Now, I'm giving you information. I'm giving you what is here is called traditions. And sometimes I'm going to step on your toes. Actually, the Bible is. If I'm backing up what I say with the Bible and step on your toes, some people don't like that. And the first ta- you know who's the first target? Me. I'm teaching the Word. I'm backing it up with the Word. That doesn't make any difference. I've trampled on their sacred cow, and they will not have it. And they will never change their mind. I implore you, keep an open mind. Because you might be wrong. I might be wrong. I see it happen all the time. Pastors. There's not a pastor behind a pulpit that's been 100% right all the time. We're wrong sometimes. And a pastor that is not open-minded and willing to let the text speak for itself and be convicted that I'm holding the wrong, I'm embracing the wrong thing here. That's what we have to do. Now, we're not willy-nilly. And there are some things, I'll tell you this, when it comes to faith alone in Christ alone, I don't have much latitude there. But it's not because I have a feeling. It's not because when I grew up in the Baptist church, they subscribed to that. It's because I, in my life study of the Word, more than any other doctrine in the, in the whole Word, I know that it's all by faith. And that is trampled on more than any other thing. But even then, I don't want, when somebody talks about, well, you've got to be good to go to heaven or something like that, I have learned not to say, oh, yeah? Well, listen to this. Here you go. You get on your soapbox and you're preaching to them and they've tuned out. I've learned to ask questions. Oh, really? Wow. You've got to be good to go to heaven? You've got to have works? Can't sin too much? Is that right? Oh, yeah. Where Where did you get that? Where'd you get that idea? Are y'all doing that? It makes them think. We have to be humble. We have to recognize we don't have all the answers. And things that you have subscribed to in the past, things that your parents have subscribed to, that's why when you talk to a religious person, it's so hard to get through to them because they think if they, their 
off course from what they have always been taught, that they are traitors to their family. And their family will treat them like traitors. We have to be smart as serpents and as gentle as doves and ask questions. Let's close. Father, we're so thankful that your word penetrates. We don't have all the answers and sometimes we're wrong. But we need to use discernment when we're talking to people about you about your word, about things that are really important. It's not a contest. It's not a debate. It's not a win-lose. It's using your word and asking questions to help them think it through so that the Holy Spirit can use that in order to win them for Christ. We pray that we will remember these things. And if we have old patterns that we're comfortable with, if they need to be broken, so be it. So that we can reach the lost, just as Christ asked the Pharisees and turned, turned everything around by his question. We pray that you will help us meditate upon this so that we can be better servants, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.